Controller Scott Stringer joining us. The mayoral candidate has a vision, and it's going to take us from the years of the dumpster fire to the future of the dumpster pool. Can you dig it? But before we get to that, Alex, uh, fill us in on what's happening in New York this week. Well, I'm going to try to run through this not quite like a commenter at a horse race, but, you know, we do have a lot to get through. We you know, want to get to Scott as soon as possible. And we're off. (laughs) COVID. On Wednesday, April 7th, the mayor announced a program for those who are suffering with, quote, long COVID, end quote. The test and trace program is starting an aftercare program. As we know from our FAQ friend Mara Gay, the side effects of COVID for a huge amount of New Yorkers really do extend. Shortness of breath. It's been linked to depression, a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's kind of cool that... That's actually happening, an aftercare program for people suffering with, like, long-term side effects. Anyway, something to look out for more information on. I have my doubts, by the way, about the uh, test and trace core, which replaced the disease detectives and seemed to be things where de Blasio has these big, splashy announcements, and then these things disappear for months on end and then resume in a new form. So tracking people who are suffering from long COVID and, and, and aftercare, I think, is excellent. But uh, now that we've had the announcement, let's see what, uh, what actually happens. You think it should have been back in the responsibility of the health department like it used to be? Could be. Could um, be. Yeah. You know, other things that he generally mentions and then drops like that audit of the private companies running his shelter system. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. All right. So in recreation, some cool things are happening. Coney Island is opening up on Friday. I have to uh, get some dental work done, but I'm going to be there in the morning to see who's out and if I can take some cool pictures. Governor's Island is opening up on May 1st, so it's pretty exciting uh, since we've all been cooped up for this dismal COVID winter. Um, The mayor also announced that all public beaches and at least 48 of the public pools in the city are going to be open all summer. Now for newsy news. Bad cops. Queen's woman sues cop for revenge porn. Dot, dot, dot. Harry, you want to take it away? So David Brand reported in the Queen's Eagle that a woman there is suing a NYPD police officer who taped her without her consent while this married officer and her, not his wife, engaged in a sex act and then sent her a clip of the tape and suggested he'd release more footage. He then told her he didn't even know why she was complaining because he was probably the 50th girl he'd recorded. The Queen's district attorney's office seemed disinterested, and that's how this ended up as a uh, civil suit, uh, according to her complaint. Meantime, in Brooklyn, District Attorney Eric Gonzalez is moving to dismiss about 90 convictions involving a former narcotics detective who's now facing perjury charges in Manhattan after going through uh, mostly relatively minor drug cases he was involved in and saying the cases were old enough that he didn't find any evidence of misconduct. None of the people are presently imprisoned. Uh, but the DA said uh, we can't responsibly rely on his testimony 
to stand by those convictions. And over at The Intercept, John Bolger and Alex Spiri got their hands on internal NYPD training documents for the Strategic Response Group, or SRG, a.k.a. the Goon Squad, that's been handling all of these protests, often very violently and aggressively. It's a actually very interesting, granular look at uh, how these cops are supposed to act that you can then uh, – compare to how they, in fact, acted over their responses to this summer of protests, often seeming to uh, precipitate violence where it hadn't been there previously. Another thing that's happening, one of our favorite uh, FAQ guests, Andy Newman from the New York Times, his articles last year about the kinds of workers in the city that you don't usually see, the people that collect cans, et cetera, got him a lot of attention, wrote a new piece this week about how homeless people are or are not receiving their stimulus money. It gets complicated if people don't have an ID or an address or haven't filed taxes. Um, it was really amazing kind of in-depth look uh, following specifically one woman through this kind of almost like puzzle and maze of how to negotiate this when you don't have a home and you don't have a mailing address. It's a great read. The next item that's been making some news, two doormen that were present when a Filipi an older Filipino woman was attacked and beaten outside of a luxury building in Manhattan have been fired by the building. Their union is currently contesting it. Um, and that we're going to see how that kind of like plays out. A lot of buildings have rules that they don't want doormen to follow or get involved in physical altercations outside. So the union is making the case that they're either kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't and weren't quite sure what to do. However, they are seen later in the video to be helping the woman after the attack. Uh, the NYPD said that they did not, however, call 911. So here's the biggest news of the day, the state budget. Uh, just a few highlights to, to go through it all would add a considerable amount of time to this podcast. Um, there's $2.1 billion in aid for undocumented immigrants hit hard by the pandemic. If you guys had heard about it. There was a bunch of people on a hunger strike, I think for 18 or 19 days to try to raise awareness that, it, you know, the excluded workers of New York City and New York State needed money too. Cuomo initially didn't include any money for it, but since has, you know, kind of made sure, well, no, he didn't make sure, but people had lobbied and made sure that there was something in the fund. However, it is reported that a bunch of assembly members and state senators privately kind of mewed and complained about the whole thing, talking about reservations that they may or may not have about how to get this money to people and how those people would like, you know, prove that they had earned it or whatever. Um, let's see. We're going to legalize mobile sports betting statewide, apparently. He did get $1.3 billion in financing to overhaul Penn Station. However, it came with like a bunch of restrictions, one of which I was particularly interested in is that a lot of the money can't be used for what's called above-grade construction, which is like above the ground floor, which means he doesn't get these office towers that Cuomo has wanted. Good news in rent relief, $2.4 billion in rent and homeowner relief. So that's not all going to tenants. Um, and we'll kind of see how that plays out. Those were my flags. Harry, did you have any? 
So it's $212 billion budget. That's only $10 billion less than uh, California, which has a, a significantly larger population. It's up about 10% from last year, in part because of these new taxes, mostly on the wealthy. But it's a, it's a really big increase, and it's a marker of how much weaker a position Cuomo is in than a uh, year ago, which is also why this budget was a little late when he's taking pride in on-time budgets. Uh, plainly, his uh, negotiating power is not what it was. We seem to be in a new era, at least for right now, in Albany. Yeah, the new taxes from the uh, Tax the Rich program. What is it going to bring in like $4.6 billion or something like that, taxing people in the over $1 million range or over $2 million if it's a joint filing and uh, some more money taken from corporations that seems like um, a big difference from his don't tax the rich stance that we've been hearing about for the last two years. So speaking of uh, taxes and money and all that, we talked today with Scott Stringer, New York City's controller, mayoral candidate, guest on this podcast. Let's jump right in. Controller Scott Stringer, welcome back. Good to be here. <laughs> okay, let's uh let's jump right in. So, real quick, uh why should you be mayor and why will you be mayor? Look, I think the city is facing uh, three crises at the same time. We have an economic crisis, we have a health crisis, and we have a social justice crisis. And when you think about what life was like pre-COVID when the unemployment rate was 3.4% and we had added 970,000 jobs to the economy in 10 years, once COVID came, the unemployment rate went to 20%. In communities of color, it was 25%. Among young people, it was 36%. And those 970,000 jobs, Harry, well, 900,000 were wiped out in 30 days. And even now, we're still short 600,000 jobs. The people who got hit the hardest were the people who were living in communities that government never invested in. And I believe that part of the health crisis was about a plan uh, with this government that never invested. And when COVID came, the most vulnerable were hit the hardest. I think we need a mayor who has vision and experience to change the trajectory of so many people in this city. And I'm running because I believe we need a progressive mayor who knows how to govern, who knows how to manage the hell out of the city, but also has detailed plans to build the low-income housing we need, to change education opportunities for our children, to invest in real climate change. And that's why I've decided to run for mayor of this amazing city. And why is it you think that you will be mayor? Just I know Andrew Yang has sort of sucked up a lot of the oxygen and has put out his own polling showing, uh, uh, you know, he's way ahead and all that. So so putting on your strategist hat for yourself, just lay out, lay out the case, please, uh, for, for how we get there. Well, the way you become mayor is you get the most votes. You do well at ranked choice voting. But at the end of the day, I've been in this movie before. Believe it or not, I was... 20 points behind Elliot Spitzer and was written off uh, as a goner early on in the campaign. In fact, the day he announced people were coming over my house like it was a shiver. And I fought back because I knew the office of controller. I had real government experience. I wanted the job. And as a born and raised New Yorker, I understood the challenges facing our city. 
So I've been in the movie. I, I also know what the last scene is going to be. And I have every intention of winning this race. And the way you do it is you build a multiracial intergenerational coalition. I've done that. You bring labor to the table. I've done that. Uh, without raising big real estate money, I've raised $9.1 million. That's going to help in the waning months of the campaign. But also, I have to say, I think people want somebody who understands government, who has experience, who's a real New Yorker, and has a realistic view of how we bring the city back from this pandemic. And I'm excited about making the case, and I'm doing it all over the city. Sometimes it's on Zoom, but a lot of times now we're in the streets, we're at the subway stops. People want fundamental change, and they want a visionary mayor, but they also want a little something different. They don't want a third term of Bill de Blasio. They actually want someone who's going to walk into City Hall around 7 a.m. and do this job. So we have uh, a lot of last year, a lot of the talk in New York City and in New York State was about what a deep hole we were in economically and how difficult that was going to be to dig out of. In part because of what happened in Georgia with Democrats controlling the Senate, uh, in part because tax revenues here came in lower than they, they, they were expected at the beginning of the year, but much higher than the, the direst expectations. There seems to be a fair amount more money on the table than had been expected. There's also it looks like we have a deal for some new taxes that would bring in revenue, particularly from the most wealthy. So I'm interested in your view on what's happening in Albany right now and the position that leaves New York in, and if that means that maybe some of these crises are less dire than they'd appeared a few months ago, uh, at least in terms of the state's fiscal health in the cities. Look, when you think about the budget uh, and the budget action in Albany, we will re realize and raise $4 billion in new revenue, which could go to helping with essential services and building back the city from the pandemic. We are going to get $6 billion in stimulus money. Let me caution that stimulus money is not reoccurring revenue. It's really money used over one or two, maybe two and a half years to move the city economy again. And I have some ideas about how to do that. But long term, we are going to need increased revenue. And I want to say to the Democrats in Albany, especially the new generation of elected officials, uh, Jessica Ramos and Carmen De La Rosa, Alessandra Biagi, Yulene New, uh, Julia Salazar, the people who we all or some of us supported to take on the Democratic establishment, the IDC establishment, they got elected and they have done more in two legislative sessions than people who've been there for 20 years have accomplished. I am very proud to call them my supporters. And I think they have contributed more to bringing back the city than any group of people I know. So thanks for coming on. Um, we haven't been stood up this much ever. I'm just going to throw that out there, just so you know the eggshells that are already on the carpet. Um, but in your, I do want to circle back a little bit because, you know, as someone who teaches political science, I always tell my students there's the campaigning phase and there's the governance phase. And I think before this race started, it was pretty much a non-starter that Scott Stringer in governance would be someone where he actually wants the job, has wanted the job. This is This is just the word on the curb, right? He wants the job. He's wanted the job for a long time. So he'd actually do the job. We wouldn't have to worry about him being out of state running for shenanigans offices. He'd actually be in the office working every day for New Yorkers. He actually cares about New Yorkers. He tends to surround himself with smart people, women of color who were smart to help him as advisors. So we'd know that his cabinet would be something that would reflect the city. Now, now we're at the governance phase. It seems as though we've got 
snake oil salesmen. We've got people with daddies with deep pockets. We've got folks who were saying, I'm a better manager than anyone in this race. We have a whole bunch of diversity here, right? And so some people are, are touting descriptive representation and what it should look like for the city. The question that I think some folks have is, how is it that it seemed as though a few months ago, this was your race to lose? And right now, you're not in, say, the big three conversation necessarily. And because we have a primary season that's not September that we're accustomed to, a summer where you could go to cookouts and parades and do all the things, we're in June and the media seems to be following sort of the flashy candidates as they are wont to do. Substantively, how are you going to make inroads? You said that you're going to, you know, you're going to train stops and, you know, Zoom meetings. But, like, how do you realistically make this race yours? By making sure that the way you described the campaign and my candidacy sticks with the voters. People want a New Yorker who actually wants to be mayor and bring the city back from a pandemic. People actually want someone who could walk in on day one in City Hall and think about how we can reimagine the economy of this city. And by that, I mean, we can no longer have a mayor who doesn't think carefully about land use and zoning. When you look at how this city cited peaker plants and dirty bus depot uh, plants in the city, the mantra was put it uptown, put it uptown. Everything was put it uptown, put it in Queens, put it in the Bronx. And then COVID came and we saw that the people who were suffering the most in the city were black people and Latino people in their 50s and 40s who had diabetes, type two diabetes and asthma and obesity issues because government never engaged communities. We managed people's illnesses. That has to change. And we need a mayor who is going to actually understand land use and zoning issues, how we can create a green economy. And the way I make that case is by showcasing what I've done in my career, Christina. Mayoral races come down always at the end of the day, not to who starts the race, but who finishes the race. And there's no greater closer in politics right now than me. When everyone <laughs> said that, what, yeah, it's true. When, when everyone said, even Moscow was gonna be borough president, that guy can't win, we won. So, so here's so, the thing. I'm not worried about the conventional wisdom because yeah. the conventional wisdom only matters in the last week of the campaign. That's run through the tape, as my dad says. So what skill sets are you bringing from your days as Manhattan Borough President, from your days as Comptroller? So let's do a a quick visualization exercise. It's January 1st. We're no longer social distancing. We're all out in the cold. I'm with New York One and with Harry doing a podcast episode. You're sworn in, drop off the family, and then you go to work. What is literally, you sit down with your team. What is literally the first thing that, is a priority for you, building on your skill set as Manhattan Borough President and also Comptroller? First of all, we go to work bringing back the economy. We make sure that we invest heavy in making sure every small business can reopen, that we close the retail vacancy gap in so many of our communities. We've already laid out a $1 billion stimulus package so that we can give the small businesses the direct Uh, resources they need to restock, rehire, and build out their businesses. We move to a transportation plan that uh, codifies permanent open streets. We bring retail out into those streets so that we can create uh, a synergy and economy, especially in our immigrant communities that are truly suffering. And look, 
It's not like Wall Street doesn't impact the city, but those billionaires made $50 billion during the pandemic. They made banks. So the next mayor, this mayoralty, is going to focus on all the people who almost were at the edge. But walk me through how. Like, how do we do that? And let's just say Governor Cuomo is still in office. (laughs) which I I put money on the fact that he is, right? So you're working with a federal government that's borderline broke. You're working with a governor who... Well, we have have $6.1 million in stimulus money. It's not just getting that money. It's also spending it. So it actually lasts longer than the two and a half years. That is one way to do this. With the new tax revenue coming out of Albany, we also have a real opportunity to create a, a, a new vision of how we bring our economy back. And we bring it back from community not from the point of the super big businesses already doing well. I want to make sure that we incentivize small businesses to move into vacant commercial corridors in all of our city. And then I want to address the real root causes of poverty and tackle the issues that Bill de Blasio could have tackled in a good economy, but failed at it. So first and foremost, I'm going to reduce homelessness because I have a visionary housing plan that's very simple that I will put into action the first day of my mayoralty. I'm going to have the city council pass a land bank, land trust piece of legislation so that we can catalog and then use the vacant properties in the city, vacant parcels of land that the city owns. We're going to give that land back to the people, to community-based organizations, affordable housing groups. We're going to recalculate or eliminate the 421A program and create a new subsidy program to build what I call low-income housing right now. We have built unaffordable, affordable housing over the last seven years because we built this housing with luxury developers who couldn't build low-income housing. So we ended up gentrifying whole neighborhoods. And I'm going to create the opportunity to take thousands of vacant parcels of land and create the low-income housing we need with an AMI that will reflect the community. Second, I'm going to make sure that when we look at new development, 25% of new development will be set aside for low-income housing. We need a mayor who is going to have vision and the guts to tackle the incredible affordable housing crisis we have. 500,000 people are on the verge of homelessness. 60 plus thousand people sleep every night in a dangerous shelter, or many do. Uh, Half of them are children. So Christine and Harry, I want to upend the status quo here. We can no longer negotiate affordable housing through the city council lens of here's 20 units, 30 units, and in exchange, a developer gets a 30-story luxury building. We're going to have a comprehensive housing plan. That is actionable on day one. And also, on day one, we're going to put our education plan in place. Because of the $2.4 billion in rental relief, the work I've done with Senator Jessica Ramos to create a subsidy to triple the number of subsidized childcare slots in the city can now be realized. Many of you know I have a plan called NYC under three, triple the number of slots, close child care deserts. And by the way, let me give Bill de Blasio credit for pre-K. We use that as a template to build zero to three. And then part two of our plan is to put two teachers in every classroom so that every child has that kind of uh, engagement with teachers. K to five is my plan. And the last part of that is in order to make that happen, we need to create a teacher residency program. We're going to need 7,000 new teachers, 1,000 teachers a year. But 40% of our teachers, they leave after five years. So we need to engage them with a residency program and development so that their profession and goals could be realized. And lastly, we're going to equalize after school because education is not 830 to 240. 
And if a kid in one class or one school has uh, chess and robotics and athletics because parents have a credit card and can fund it, we're going to fund after school for every single child in this city. That's what I'm going to walk into City Hall and start my day doing. Obviously, short term, I got to present a balanced budget. It has to be an aspirational budget. I know how to do that as city controller, as the chief fiscal officer. But then we're going to dream big, but we're actually going to build an administration that can do the things we need to do. I'm so old. I remember Bill de Blasio talking a lot about after school that was supposed to be the other half with with pre-K sort of disappeared. Uh, controller, when you're talking about upending the status quo and thinking about people at the bottom, the people at the top in New York have had a, a very good deal for a long time and frustration has built up about that. However, Midtown is a, is a ghost town. A lot of the larger companies aren't necessarily doing well. I know the, the giant tech companies, for instance, have, have done wonderfully in the course of all this, but they're not in my view, at least, really part of the uh, the fabric of New York in quite the same way, even when they're based here. So I'm wondering, has the status quo already been, to some extent, upended? And, you know, it, it sounds like you're making the assumption that whatever wealth producing or whatever term you like people are here are, are, are necessarily going to stay. And I know that lots of those people, and you've talked about this and others have, fled New York, uh, weren't here over the, the, the summer, were working remotely, have been thinking about moving their offices. Like, hasn't the status quo already been upended? No, no. We, we, we've had what, – what, what we've had is an unprecedented pandemic that uh, we have fought through. But – business as usual has remained the same. Uh, the people who were left out of this economy and the governance of this city pre-pandemic are the same people who are now in even worse shape. There's a lot of talk about let's, you know, we're getting ready for the roaring 20s again. Well, that will be true uh, in some places, but there is an underbelly of people who have suffered greatly during this pandemic. And that is where it's going to take a lot longer to build back, but you can't build the economy back the same way we closed it. So we cannot continue to feed the homeless crisis by throwing money at programs that don't work. Under Bill de Blasio, we spent one point, we went from spending $1.6 billion managing the homeless crisis to $3.2 billion managing the crisis with very little to show for it. A lot of people talk about how they have solutions to homelessness, but no one ever talks about giving the homeless a home with supportive services. And the reason we don't discuss that is because there's no plan to build this kind of housing. And that is exactly what I'm going to do. And it doesn't stop there. When you talk about education opportunities, look, I, I have two little kids, as you know, a third grader and a second grader. It was a very, it is very tough for remote learning, especially for one of my kids. My wife and I spent a lot of time saying, how are we going to get through this? But the truth is we have privilege. We really do. We have a credit card, we have resources. So when my kid has an issue or needs a learning device or extra internet access, it takes, it takes one, one click of a button and my kid gets it. The challenge for the next mayor is to represent every child. And I have done the investigations and the truth is the 100,000 kids who go through a homeless uh, system, they don't have working remote learning devices. Kids in public housing don't have internet access. And if it is, it's so slow, it doesn't even matter. When I say upend the status quo, we got to walk into the Department of Education with a new chancellor and get all of those bureaucrats out of DOE, get resources into the classrooms, 
build a mental health infrastructure that's not politicized, meaning take thrive and put that money to work and triple the number of guidance counselors and mental health counselors for our children so we don't see teenage suicide or kids my age who have not had closure with the death of friends and relatives. There's a lot that this mayor has to do to upend the status quo, even, even if everybody feels that this thing is coming back. So speaking of upended status quos, uh, your 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 office, not your campaign, put out a, a blueprint for uh, improving public safety in New York, and uh, that had five basic prongs. Um, one of them had to deal with the uh, near-term spike in, in crime and particularly shootings. I'm wondering if you can get into that a bit because, you know, you're talking about improving uh, detective work and clearance rates, which have gone down here and nationally in, in, in the course of this. I'm curious how that would happen and, and just what other role you see the NYPD playing there since a lot of that ha- had to do with violence interrupters and, and other things, other departments. I think a big part of the plan is shifting power outside of the NYPD to other parts of the city. So what role the NYPD should be playing in crime prevention generally and violent crime right now? I think that this is an incredible moment to recognize what we've seen nationally, whether it's the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the national Black Lives Movement that says that we have to rethink over-policing in so many of our communities, especially in Black And we see the ugly history play out nationally over the summer. But we also have our own history that we have to come to terms with. uh, And that starts with issues of Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell and Eric Garner. The next mayor cannot be passive aggressive. Next mayor has to appoint a police commissioner that's aligned with thinking and judgment about how to rethink policing. And it comes with what I put forth, a very forward thinking community safety plan, a public safety plan, which basically shifts police responsibilities in the areas of mental health and wellness and quality of life issues to shift the PD to doing the work, rooting out dangerous crime. Crime is predictable. We know where the shooters are in communities. We do need to up the clearance rates because we have to solve these crimes so they don't occur again. And I think we need to have a police department that's managed to do that work. I also think we have to own up to the fact that 40% of the 911 calls coming in are not for crimes. They are for mental health issues or quality of life issues. And why can't we be the leaders in this country in thinking about a new way of dealing with public safety? When you think about the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, where 24,000 calls went to 911 about mental health episodic issues, and they sent out mental health professionals, and only 150 times were the police even needed. That's what we should be focusing on. And to your point about violence interrupters and mentorship programs, we got to keep kids away from the criminal justice system. There are plans and programs that are working, Harry, but they're not scaled up. They're they're one-off plans without a comprehensive uh, policing agenda that will recognize this. But I also want to tell you that this is not new to me, and I'm not just here to tell you this. I saw firsthand uh, when I was a young assemblyman, uh, when Roger Green and Al Van, names that people may not recognize today as they did in a different time period, But I remember when those Republicans in Albany, all they wanted was to build a prison in upstate New York in their district. It was like a badge of honor. If they could get a prison, they got a parade, they got reelected. They would take mostly black and brown kids from downstate, move them upstate because they wanted to create economic development around the prisons. 
that was a strategy. That was actually a strategy. I saw it firsthand. A lot of us said, why don't we build schools and daycare centers and after-school programs? And we created this whole false economy in upstate New York, and it collapsed. Then the private hedge fund guys came in and said, hey, why don't we invest in private prisons? They could be ICE detention centers, and we could make bank on people's misery. And I'm proud, by the way, as controller to divest all of our holdings from private prisons because that was not the solution. So where are we today? Let's make sure our children stay away from the criminal justice system. We can't over-police them. We should not put them in those situations. And the way to do that is invest in summer jobs, after-school programs, and give them the hope they need. When you do that, you actually protect all of our kids. What should happen with the spate of anti-Asian violence that's been happening nationally and in New York in particular. The Times had an excellent piece yesterday, the first substantially reported piece I've seen about how one of the attackers had been arrested 33 times. We know another one had actually killed his mother earlier. We seem to be dealing with a lot of people who are mentally disturbed and have been cycling in and out of the uh, the criminal system for, for a long time. Uh, a lot of the rallies have been around sort of broader themes of racism and white supremacy and that hatred, but it's not necessarily clear that that entirely aligns with with what's been happening in the attacks here. Just what do you see as the uh, the problem, and what do you see as the uh, as the appropriate solution? Well, I do think you know Donald Trump uh, and the white supremacists and their hateful rhetoric has contributed to these attacks and attacks on a lot of people of color. And we have to recognize that and say that. Uh, And one of the things about this great city is when one group is attacked, every other group shows up because we want to make sure uh, that the Asian community is not alone, just like people have stood up for the Muslim community and the Jewish community. And we are that group of people and we protect our folks. I do think to the issue of mental health, I do think that is a legitimate issue. And right now, our city runs the largest mental health center in the city, and it's called Rikers Island. Half the people in Rikers are there for mental health issues, and we are not dealing with that core fact. So when people come out from Rikers and don't get services because they haven't been tended to, uh, we sort of lose where they are, and the episodic events that are happening, uh, we lose control of that. And so I do think there has to be a much more street mental health presence. We're going to have to drive and understand the programs that work. One of my problems with Thrive was, look, for $200 million a year, you should at least know what programs are working and what programs aren't. I wasn't, you know, I, I, I didn't mind a, a, you know, bringing a lot of services under one umbrella, but it can't be that we just do these one-off programs and we don't measure success. And if it does turn out that the time story is correct and we do have these episodic events that are resulting in people being uh, hurt or killed, that says we have to ramp up our efforts. We also need to engage in community-led safety efforts. And rather than have a top-down police approach, strategy says, let's actually engage with Asian American stakeholders. Let's think about the right way Uh, to come at this to protect the citizens of the city. A lot of the challenges that we're going to face is about not just saying something and not following through. I do think the next mayor is going to be held to a very high standard of actually getting things done, but also through the lens of what's right and just. And I think you got to get there, especially on these issues of criminal justice and 
making sure that our kids are safe and communities are safe. So I have some questions about just the nitty gritty of how that gets done. Were you on taxing millionaires and how do we get more revenue for some of these programs that you laid out to help our children and homelessness? I mean, there's only but so much money coming from the federal government and Albany and the stimulus. So we've got a lot of wealthy New Yorkers. They can threaten to leave all they want. They're not leaving. So how do we make them pay their fair share? First of all, I would go back to them and everybody and talk about the value proposition you're going to have with the next mayor. If everybody contributes to bringing the city back, we're going to be successful. And what is the value proposition for a lot of people who were asking to pay more? It's safe streets. It's clean streets. It's open space, park space. It's having a well-run city where everyone could walk freely and be part of the most diverse city in the whole world. And to get there, everyone has to do their part. Now, excluded workers and frontline workers, no one could argue that they weren't the heroes of the pandemic, right? The nurses, the doctors, the people who were in our communities, I mean, they saved lives. They fed people. They took care of kids. Many people who are MTA employees passed away. Teachers passed away. Uh, and they contributed. And what I would say to the wealthiest people in the city, you also have to get off the sidelines and help us build the revenue we need to do the work of bringing our city back. I think Albany acted responsibly. The fact that we are now raising taxes among the wealthiest will realize $4 billion in new revenue that we're also going to need for essential services. You and I are on the same page when it comes to stimulus. It is a moment in time, that money, but it does not lend itself to reoccurring revenue. Look at what Jessica Ramos and the state Senate and others did on our NYC under three childcare. The fact that there is now $2.4 billion in funding for childcare, suddenly my NYC under three proposal as mayor gets actionable. It's action, right? And I called for just a few weeks ago, a billion dollars in stimulus funding for small businesses in the arts. And now Albany is meeting us halfway. This is because of the change in Albany that I think will result in some amazing stuff. And also- Wait, As mayor, as mayor, how are you getting these, uh, these people off the sidelines while making sure that they, they stay on the court or in the arena? Because I want everyone to be here. If you left, come back. If you want to leave, stick around a little bit and see what a new administration is all about and how this city will come back. And because, you know, I've, I've born and raised in the city, I've had a, a, as you all know, both of you, I've had an unusual seat to governance in the city, kind of like you, Harry, in a way. Uh, you know, my cousin Bella Abzug ran for mayor in the 1970s when everyone was going to leave the city. My mom was in the city council. Uh, I did see a lot of people in the neighborhood in Washington Heights walk out of here. But I saw a whole lot of pioneers who stay and fought back, and they built the greatest city in the world over the next 40, 50 years. So I, I believe in what government can do to bring a city back. Uh, I think we need a transparent government, a more effective government, but I also think we need a progressive government. I do believe that if you're going to live in the city, you want to live among everybody. You want to make sure that everyone's civil liberties are protected. So Christina, the way I'm approaching this campaign is I'm making proposals that I can pay for. I'm making proposals that I believe are actionable. I don't suddenly turn around and say, I have a billion dollars and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to do something with it. That's not me. I'm saying 
this is how we move things. And, you know, this week we did summer in the city because I think it's time to get our kids out and away from Minecraft and uh, Fortnite and get them into pools and into uh, day camps and that stimulus money, right? But we also need reoccurring funding so that we can keep the camps open. We can build the swimming pools for the 21st century. <laughs> so, I mean, listen, I like the pop-up swimming pool idea largely because, you know. It's going to be great. A lot of communities, seriously, I mean, are are dying of heat, you know. Um, and so there's this level of imaginative thinking that we have to have in this COVID New York City era. I just... I think I want to, <laughs> some people call them dumpster pools, but I mean, they- well, Can I tell you something? Decorate. I, I love I, I love the dumpster pools. <laughs> you know, now we have to remember, we're not taking dumpsters that had like leftover, you know, pizza in them. These right. are going to be clean dumpster pools. But imagine- well, So it's oh, new well, dumpster been, diving. It's just a different version of dumpster diving. Look, we, we, look, in Washington Heights, we used to open up the fire hydrants. Of course, we waited for the police and the fire department to come and open them. But we had the fire hydrants, right? Let's get to the 21st century version. They're called dumpster pools. And let's get those big pools in the East River going and showcase for our kids what we think about them. And also, there's an equity issue here because the truth is not every kid can swim, especially in communities that are hit hardest economically. There's 2,000 kids on the waiting list for swim lessons. 2,000. costs $200,000 a year. The richest city in the world that we can't give kids the swimming lessons that will save their lives. It, we need a new administration. Who's going to sweat that? So, and so before we, we get to, I see Harry's chomping at the bit, right? So before we get to the lightning round, I want to ask two quick questions. One, would you keep Thrive? And if you did, who would be in charge of it? And two, when we think about the NYPD, I want to sort of get more detailed thoughts. You know, can the NYPD be re- rehabilitated? Many New Yorkers don't think so. And... I want you to sort of walk us through what your relationship would look like with the NYPD, what leadership would look like, what rehabilitation and education would look like, and also what residency requirements possibly are are on the docket for some of these police officers. Let's start with Thrive. Do you keep it, keep parts of it, throw it away? And if you do keep some of it, who's in charge of it? Thrive, as we know it, will be no more in a stringer administration. But those precious dollars, the $200 million a year earmarked for mental health initiatives, will be repurposed into the programs that will get results. We need to triple the number of guidance counselors in our school system. We definitely need to focus from teenagers to kids my age on mental health programs in consultation with teachers and mental health professionals. I am very worried, Christina, about our kids when they come back together. I just know from my own kids and the closure issues they've had with the death of my mom, their grandmother, you know, I thought that they had moved on. And then just one day in class uh, remotely, you know, my, my little Miles is the sweetest guy in the world, just starts crying. And we didn't know why. And it was because he, he missed his grandmother. And this is the tip of the iceberg because we have a lot of kids who lost their father and mothers who are frontline workers. So I, the politics of Thrive, no, I, I'm not that. I'm going to put these programs to work for the kids, especially as they come back into classroom settings. And also we have to watch out for the teenagers who we already are seeing an uptick in, in suicide. So that is going to be one of my basic initiatives as mayor. And we're going to start it on day one. I feel like a lot of the candidates keep talking about George Floyd. 
which we should, don't get me wrong, but we're not talking about, say, Eric Garner, things that happened in our own city with New York City police officers. So what's your plan for the NYPD? Can they be rehabilitated? I mean, they've shown us time and time again that that's a real question as to whether or not that's possible. Well, at the beginning of this interview, I talked about George Floyd, but also talked about our own history that we have to come to terms with in the name of Amadou Diallo and Eric Garner and Sean Bell and those struggles. Look, I was arrested during the Amadou Diallo struggle back 20 years ago. And the fact that this has not gotten better, but actually gotten worse is something that we could debate here for many hours. But I do think that we have to look at the disciplinary procedures in the NYPD and again, tackle it head on. You know, the CCRB, the one thing de Blasio and all the people who were in the CCRB could have done was come up with a reform to the police discipline that gave CCRB real heft and action on these issues. And maybe we wouldn't have the challenges that we have today. The fact that the police commissioner never enforces discipline and everybody winked and nodded about this just showcases the challenge that we have. So as mayor, we're gonna have a CCRB, the discipline will be there. It will not be with the police commissioner. So that's one way we set the ground rules. Look, when you have a gun and a badge, you can't get enough oversight. I mean, that, that you determine who lives, who dies, who gets arrested, who has a criminal record. Uh, an abusive police officer can destroy whole families, right? By putting kids into the prison system and never letting them get out of it. And we have to have zero tolerance to that. We also need a mayor who's not gonna take it. You know, I'm gonna be somebody who the police will respect. The police commissioner will be respected. I'm not losing control of the NYPD. And that's never happened in my public career. Just like no one's gonna steal my lunch money in Albany, because I've been there. No one's gonna steal my um, ability to make real systemic change within the NYPD. Do you think you'd have a, a good working relationship with Governor Cuomo? Yeah, because look, the the wh whoever is the governor, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna make sure that we reset that relationship. But you also have to be strategic about it. Look, I was the most progressive independent legislator during my time at Albany. I challenged Shelley Silver and ended empty seat voting. I passed the first rules reform. I was one of the few if only Democrats that voted against weakening the rent laws. I mean, I did my thing. Uh, but what I also was able to do is pass 40 pieces of legislation in the areas of domestic violence and social justice. And I can go back to Albany now with allies in the state Senate who did an amazing work today uh, to change the course of history for our city and get these changes. And that is why being ready on day one for these challenges is, I think, at the heart of who should be the next mayor. That, that, that leads me to, I think, our final question. You grew up in New York City politics. You spent your life largely in New York City politics with some Albany politics mixed in. Right now, according to the polls, you're, you're running third-ish behind a guy who didn't vote a whole bunch of times, who hasn't really been involved in our politics and who's made this into, uh, who's done his best, you know, as, as you do when you're offering yourself and trying to sell something, made this into an appeal. Like, you know, look at all these guys and look at the state of the city right now. Don't we need someone who's never done any of these things? So I, I just love to hear your, your thoughts and feelings about that. So because I have been involved in government and politics all my life. And because I've seen mayor elections as far back as the 1970s to now, I also know that these polls mostly 
put out by candidates whose interests are served by those polls are meaningless and irrelevant. Uh, when this race gets drilled down, New Yorkers are going to ask these questions. Do you want a mayor with no experience? Do you want a mayor who never voted in a city election, has no ideas? The ideas that he puts forth are like casinos on Governor's Island. First of all, my kids love Governor's <laughs> Island. We're never having a casino on Governor's Island. So, or do we want someone who has real detailed plans that can get the city moving again? Now, I know New York City voters because I'm the only candidate who's actually run for office citywide, not once, but twice. And I did pretty good. And I've been to the Civic Association and the churches and the Neighborhood Association. People want a mayor who will govern, but also will have the vision to move the city forward. And all candidates are going to have to come to terms with what that final poll is going to look like in June. And I can give everybody advice because I've been in that final poll in June. People want you to make the argument. They're not ready to close down many of the candidates, myself included. So let's just be less poll focused and less, you know, let's follow the animation. And I think as we get serious about the mayor's race, um, one thing I know about the New York press corps is the focus is actually going to be on record and, and, and beliefs and who can bring the city back. I'm not sure where you've hit that yet, but I think we're about to enter that phase. Counter case, there's, 12 people and $37 left in the New York City press corps, and we're two months out, and that, that brings its own set of issues. All the candidates are talking about this election as an existential one for New York and all that, and you wouldn't know it reading the, uh, the daily coverage, um, uh, particularly if you exclude uh, the city and uh, Politico, which have been a little more involved. But, but the daily news where I work doesn't have the bodies. The Times doesn't uh, – doesn't give a damn on a day-to-day basis. The post is ideological. There's not all that much left. Actually, actually, I, I have to, I'm just going to, you know, because as a candidate, you always, you know, candidates always complain about the press, right? We don't get covered enough and you say bad things. I do think we have less resources for the press. But in my conversations with the dailies, the Times, we didn't have podcasts like this that people actually pay attention to. Remember, we're dealing with prime voters. So this podcast gets to everyone who's listening to this podcast is a voter, right? And so that matters. And so I'm I'm betting on the press corps and I'm betting on people's engagement. But also we have new modes of communication. And I think candidates are going to have to take advantage of that. And look, the, the campaign finance system is very generous. It is allowed someone like me, not taking big real estate money or fossil fuel money, able to raise $9 million to compete against a candidate whose daddy is giving him a million dollars a day, or Ray McGuire, who's gotten $20 billion to run this race. You know, it's a pretty leveling of the playing field. I mean, it is not, we're, we're in some respects in a very good place. To the lightning round. To the lightning round. Oh, I gotta go, my kids are home. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> All right, we ready? Yes. Okay, seatbelt time. Do you support non-citizen voting in New York City? Yes. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Do you have a NYC ID? Yes. What album best captures New York City? In this moment in time, Heroes, Bowie. Okay. Have, have you used marijuana in any form since it became legal? And additionally, are you stoned right now? I have not used it since it's been legal, although in my hallway, you know, I 
sometimes think that I have used it. <laughs> Contact. Should New York City run the MTA? No. Is Kendra's law over, under, or properly applied? Mixed. Okay. What was the last city bus you were on and when and to where? I was uh, at the, in the uh, 14th Street. I got on the 14th Street busway just the other day, and it runs smooth and fast. We need more of them. 35 miles a year in new busways under my administration. You do have to pay again, though, just said. Should, and should the uh, community preference policy for city-subsidized affordable housing programs be increased, remain as it is, be decreased, or be done away with? I think that my affordable housing plan would change that trajectory. So I want you to give me a chance to initiate our policy. So two follow-ups to the lightning round, and we are clear here. Uh, what does it mean that Kendra's law is mixed? I just I just haven't focused on in answer to your question about you know, how it's worked and how it hasn't. So my, my sense is, that to me, it's status quo. And do you think that there should be some community preference program with city subsidized housing where people in a given neighborhood have so much of the housing allotted to them, yes or no? I, I would say yes on some level. But again, I think we have to make sure that we make housing available to everybody. So I think having a more encompassing low-income housing plan would allow for more people to be in communities who are low-income. But I do want to keep the people who are in our neighborhoods in our neighborhoods. All right. Well, we'll see if next time you come on, maybe uh, you'll be the the next 110th mayor of New York City elect. Well, that would be a lightning round that we'll never forget. Thank you both. Thank you. When we get back to normal, are you ever going to do a Zoom again or is that it? You know, I think we're going to do them, but it's great to be out campaigning now, you know, carefully. Harry, it's, you got to come out with us one. You want anyone, if you ever want to come out and hang out, it's, it's, it's really just great to be talking to people again. <laughs> you know? I'm basically feral at this point. I don't know how to talk to people. This is. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, if, if I, if I could write a book, I have 10 chapters already about this mayor's race. I, I mean, it's, you know, and my two bedroom apartment with two kids. I, I, can yeah. you imagine who does that? It's the, <laughs> who could even do that? My God, have, I, raising you, a family in a city of two kids. I know. Well, you know what the problem is? Not only do you have to stay in the city and raise them, but then you have to actually go out once a year and vote. It's 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 very difficult. <laughs> These burns. Yeah. <laughs> These burns. The burden. The burden that we all share. All right, everybody. Good to see you. Thank you. All good right. To see you. Thank you, controller. Bye. Bye. F A Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, Comptroller Scott Stringer. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>